You can never tell on Mother's Day if it'll be more crowded or less. Eight thirty was really crowded, so maybe it was a maybe it's a brunch thing. Let's begin in quiet and deep breath. Friends, let us worship in beloved community. Please rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. Let us look for the risen one. We pray for our eyes to be opened. Let us become comfortable with mystery. We pray for a trust beyond understanding. Let us work toward compassion and relationship.
may be seated. Welcome. Welcome to Westminster. Welcome to worship. Especially if you're new to this worshiping community, I welcome you. I do invite you after worship to our coffee hour for coffee, tea, a chance to get to know each other just a little better. And during our offering, if you're sitting here in the middle, I do invite you to fill out that pew pad, pass it down, pass it back, take a look at the names of the people sitting near you, and I invite you after worship to introduce yourself to each other, take a chance to get to know those who are sitting next to you. So let's join together now in our community prayer. Let us pray. God, we have been taught to be suspicious of our experiences. We have relegated an active and involved God or spirit to ancient times, ancient texts. But the risen Lord comes to us as well and moves in our midst. Help us recognize Christ and to learn to see as Christ. Help us to be transformed by the resurrection and to practice resurrection in our lives. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, know that God loves each one of us unconditionally. Receive the wonderful gift of God's forgiveness. May the abundance of God's mercy and grace set you free. Thanks be to God. Amen. I now want to invite any of the children who are worshiping with us to come join me here at the front. Good morning, everyone. Oh, it's good to see you all today. Good morning, good morning. So I brought with me today a baking dish. Now the reason I brought this baking dish with me today is because this week I have been thinking about and really giving thanks for this congregation, this church family, and the ways that we care for each other. Now, the ways that we express our love and express God's love to one another. And one of the ways that we're really good at doing that here at this church is by offering food to people. Now, if someone is feeling sick, maybe they've been in a hospital, uh, maybe for whatever reason they're just not able to get to the grocery store or be able to cook food, we have lots of people in this congregation who will cook something and bring it to them. I remember when, um, when we had a baby and we were so tired and we weren't getting much sleep and it was really hard to go grocery shopping. It was hard to cook. We had church members come to our door once a day for like two weeks with food and it was wonderful. It was so good. And you know, one of the reasons why we show our love by offering food to people is because that is an example we have from God. 
In fact, in Sunday school today, you all are going to hear a couple of stories. Those of you who are older are going to hear a story about when some people were traveling through the wilderness and they were hungry and they didn't have really any source of food and they prayed and all of a sudden God provided them with all the food that they needed. And then those of you who are younger are going to hear about Jesus. And you know, Jesus sometimes called himself the good shepherd, caring for the sheep. And what is one thing that shepherds do for their sheep? They make sure that they are fed and that their needs are provided for and that they're cared for and their bellies aren't hungry. So there's a reason that we in the church like to offer food to people because that's an example we have from God and from Jesus. So I hope when you hear about those stories, maybe you'll go home and maybe you might think about how you might show God's love to somebody else. Maybe it's in cooking some food for them, but maybe there's another way too that you might share God's love with someone else that you know in your life. All right, so you're going to head out to Sunday school. I see Grayson back there who's going to take those of you who are in second grade and younger. And then I also see Katie back there who's going to take those of you who are in third through fifth grade. All right. Go now in peace, go now in peace, may the love of God So as we come to our time of joys and concerns, um, I want to share with you just a little bit of an update. We've been praying for Peter Wirtz and his journey with bladder cancer. It's been a very difficult journey for him. I think more challenging than, than he expected at the beginning. He was back in the hospital this week undergoing a procedure um, and just isn't quite strong enough to return home. So Kaiser suggested that he go to an acute care center down in San Leandro. And that's where Peter is now. He just went yesterday and he's going to be there for a little while until he gets back his strength in order to go home. So continued prayers for Peter and continued prayers for his wife, Marilyn as she supports him and helps to care for him. And then, of course, in our prayers today is Mother's Day. So if you are celebrating this holiday with joy, certainly prayers of joy and celebration for you. But I'm sure I know there are many of you who are celebrating this day perhaps with some sorrow or some grief. And for those of you in that situation, prayers for you as well on this Mother's Day. So what else is on your hearts and minds today? What other prayers do we have? Yeah, Martha. Yes, so, so Gino Leary, who often sings in our choir, had a fall this week and has a few injuries from that. And then Bill Shoemaker also had a fall this week and is currently under observation at the hospital, am I right? Yeah, but is recovering. So prayers for both Gene and Bill. Yeah. Others? Yeah, Bruce. That's a lot. <laughs> So Bruce is about to embark on a tour of the Midwest, visiting many, many different family members. So prayers for you on that travel, yes. Others? Yeah, Jim. We have a joy in the choir today that Britt is conducting us so that Ruthie can attend the choral time and worship. 
Absolutely. So, Britt, we thank you for filling in as choir director today. Yes. And uh, we hold Ruthie in our prayer. She's away at a, a continuing education event this weekend. Sherry. Absolutely. So continued prayers. Sherry is thanking you for your prayers as she has suffering from kidney stones while on vacation and continued prayers as you have a surgery or two coming up to continue dealing with that. Yes. So, Lena prayers uh, for her dad, who is struggling with MS and all of the physical challenges he's having with that. Yeah. Mm. Oh my goodness! So, brother-in-law who is going through immunotherapy to treat cancer, and then who is the second one? Daughter-in-law who lost who lost a family member last week. Absolutely. Let's take a few moments of quiet as we hold all of these prayers, and then I will lead us in the Lord's Prayer. So let us be in prayer together. Holy God, we remember with wonder and joy that the risen Christ is ever present with us, gathering in the lonely and the lost, touching what is wounded with healing, creating and recreating a vision of hope. For that, we do give you thanks. And hear us now as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven,
I just have to pause for a second. I'm married to a, a, a choir member, and I just want to say to all of them, the blend is really nice this morning. Amen. <laughs> Amen to that. That's not an engineering term. I, I learned that from Martha. <laughs> okay. Um, so the, the scripture reading is uh, John uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to you through these words. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together was Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there. There were fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. There was now the, this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Someone said to me after the first service that after she lost her adult daughter, she cried in church every Sunday for a year always when the music started, whether it's a uh, loss of a, a daughter or of a mother or struggles of a father. I pray that this is one of the few places where your tears are seen for what they are, and that is a gift, and that is a source of healing and hope for the world because it reminds us that we're in touch. We're in touch. I've seen a lot of tears this morning, and they should be honored as such. The story you just heard should sound familiar. 
not because you're Baptist and know the Bible that well, but because we read it last week. So <laughs> hopefully your memory is that good. I won't go into why we're reading it again. It's just worth noting its reappearance. And perhaps it's fitting in this season because this is a season in which the appearance stories of Jesus keep coming up. Jesus keeps reappearing. Last time I was with you was on Easter Sunday, and we all know that's the big one. And Jesus is raised from the dead, but it's not the only one. Does anybody know how many there are in Scripture? I mean, at one point, Paul says, and then he appeared to at least 500 more. Jesus is showing up all the time. The risen one, again and again and again. I'm reminded of this prayer by the 5th century saint, St. Patrick, that speaks of Christ all over the place. Maybe in this way, part of it's on the cover of your bulletin. It's known as St. Patrick's breastplate. Christ before me, he prays Christ behind me. Christ in me, Christ beneath me. Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, and Christ when I arise could be heard as a prayer of recognition that, that Christ is everywhere, that Christ indeed does keep showing up, keep reappearing. But I wonder if it's also a prayer of longing. Do we carry that longing in us? Wouldn't it be nice if Christ showed up to us, had breakfast with us, as he did with those early disciples, and perhaps he has for you? Do we believe that we too might be privy to a reappearance? Do we really believe that? After the services on Easter Sunday, I was in the car heading to catch up with my family, having a picnic out at Lake Lagunitas with some other families that go to my son's school. And as I was on the way, I was listening to NPR, and there was an interview with Dan Siegel. And perhaps that name rings a bell for you. He's a professor of psychiatry at UCLA, uh, director of the Mind Sight Institute, and author of The Whole Brain Child. Perhaps some of you have read that work. It was a fascinating uh, interview. He was talking about trauma in childhood trauma. And what was so powerful about it was that he was pushing it back against what I, I think is the conventional wisdom, which is that if you suffer childhood trauma, you're, you're kind of damaged for life, that you can never escape those wounds. And anyone here, and I know it could be triggering to talk about it, so I want to be careful, but anyone here has experienced that firsthand or through a loved one will know how lasting the damage from such trauma can be. But what Siegel was arguing, and he was backing up with science, and he was unequivocal in the way he stated it, was that there's always hope. And he doesn't mean hope just, oh, that it all might go away. What he's saying is that if you do the difficult work, you can actually rewire the neuropathways in your brain, and you can escape the tomb 
of your trauma, that you can come out of the grave too. And for people, it is that dramatic, from death to life. Resurrection appearance, if you've seen it firsthand. Well, I'm taking all this in, and I'm winding my way up the roads in West Marin, and I see on the side of the road this white car pulled over. Not unusual. People pull over all the time to hop on their favorite hiking trail here. And there was a man with his trunk open and uh, getting things out of the back, and I assumed he was throwing on his hiking shoes, but then I realized he wasn't putting on his shoes. He was taking them off. And then as I looked a little bit longer, I realized exactly what he was doing. He had laid out before him a prayer rug. It was an Uber or Lyft driver. It wasn't time to hike. It was time to pray. Muslims, as you know, are called to pray five times a day. And there he was about to pray. Now, I don't know if you know much about Islam, but the word itself means to surrender. That's all it means, surrender. You surrender yourself to God. And if you've ever seen Muslim prayer or participate in it, or even just seen images of it, you'll know what it looks like. You start standing up, you get down on your knees, you prostrate all the way to the ground, and then back and up and over and over again. It's a repetitious thing. What they're doing is they're practicing, one way of thinking about it, surrendering and then being lifted up. You could even say they're rehearsing, to use Christian language, death and resurrection. I mean, that's how we talk about baptism in our tradition. You die in baptism, and you're raised to new life. We do it once. They do it five times a day, rehearsing it, repeating it. There it was, someone practicing resurrection on the side of the road. On Easter, we often think about it in the church as a celebration of this one-time supernatural event, this unique resurrection. And of course, there's power in that, in what it means for us. But part of Easter ought also to be us practicing it too, rehearsing death and resurrection. And that's what we tried to do by bringing up this cross and placing flowers in it. If you were here, you saw that display. And so by the end, the symbol of, of death and execution becomes a symbol of new life for all. It's a form of bearing witness and participation. And in some cultures, that's not the exception, that's the norm. There are indigenous cultures, some Mayan cultures that have adopted Christianity and have adapted it. And by the way, every time Christianity has gone anywhere, it's been both adopted and adapted. That's why it's still alive. The cross is always shown in these cultures as covered in flowers or plants. It's always blooming because the cross is seen as the second tree of life. Isn't that a lovely image? That from death comes life. Do we believe we can experience that? Richard Rohr, the great Franciscan, who has a new book called The Universal Christ, points out that actually resurrection isn't the exception. It isn't even necessarily supernatural in the sense I said earlier. It's the rule. It's the norm, and it's entirely natural. It happens all the time. That's how life works in this creation is things die, and from them 
comes the capacity for new life. And part of our calling is to recognize that in our midst and to tune our lives to it and to join in because that, well, that changes everything about our experiences. Now, if you don't believe me, I mean, just look at today's reading. As if to prove the point, Jesus doesn't just appear once. He appears three times in the story. As if to signal, no, resurrection just keeps happening again and again. And the disciples, in their infinite wisdom, don't recognize him. Now, before we're too hard on them, we should recognize our own troubles in recognizing the risen Christ. Because if the risen Christ was present then, then the risen Christ is present right now and right here. And do we recognize? Him. Don't get lost in the logistics of how resurrection works. You can do that and go down a terrible rabbit hole. Why didn't they recognize him? Does he look different in the resurrection? Do we get a different kind of body? At what age are we resurrected? Is it like our peak physical shape? Because if so, I want my 24-year-old hairline, but I want my 27-year-old biceps, and I might like the teeth. No, don't. The point of the story is that it's difficult to see Christ in our midst. It was difficult for them, the ones who knew him in his life, and it's difficult for us. It deserves practice. It takes our attention. It requires a little bit of tuning so that we can learn to notice in a special way. Shortly before I... um, left after Easter, I met with a woman who's a UCC pastor and a licensed therapist. Her name is Ruth Mordecai. Now, that's a powerful biblical name, if there ever was. You got double Ruth Mordecai. (laughs) And I met with her because she has been studying and has started to do some teaching in what's called nonviolent communication, which I'm going to argue is a tool for experiencing resurrection. Here's what I mean by that. Nonviolent communication isn't just a way to keep you from killing the other person, though these days sometimes that feels like where we need to start. It's a way of learning to speak and probably even more so listen uh, in a manner that breaks down the usual, usual barriers that come up in contentious conversations or interaction. To avoid getting into a place where the conversation is destructive where it doesn't go anywhere, or it goes somewhere, but where it goes isn't good at all. And it's based on recognizing that beneath the other's speech, whatever that speech is, no matter how hateful that speech seems to you, beneath that speech is an expression of a need of someone, a felt need, and a felt need is by definition legitimate because somebody feels it. And so it teaches you to learn to listen in a way to hear that need, even if it's wrapped in an uncomfortable and perhaps uh, a not very well done package. And by recognizing that you hear differently, you speak differently, and the course of the conversation is altered. Nonviolent communication uh, purports to be able to help people avoid the kind of repetitive arguments that we have time and again with our family members, particularly, it says, around politics. Now, I know that's not an issue for anyone here, so we'll just move on to the... 
I can't tell you the number of people I've counseled, and this is not a sign of their failure. It's actually a sign of their success because they're reaching out for help. Uh, people I've sat with who uh, cannot go to family holidays right now, who um, avoid otherwise friends and family members because of their contentiousness around a current climate and different opinions and positions. People who've had uh, explosive interactions on social media that is that so much so that it's severed actual relationships for good. Right? Really uh, difficult things. And if nonviolent communication can help us interact in a way that uh, averts those paths, what a gift it could be. I, and before we get too down on ourselves or start being down on someone else, which is the easier move to make, it's worth recognizing how we got here. It's no wonder that we're here. I mean, we're surrounded by so much modeling of communicating in a way that that breeds death and not life, that breeds the severing of relationships rather than the forging of them. Turn on whatever screen it is, is your habit to turn on, and you'll see people denigrating the humanity and dignity of others totally dismissing them, launching character assaults where reasoned arguments might have been totally appropriate. Vicious, right? I don't have to explain this to you. You see it all the time. And it's not just in the political world, too. That's an easy target. Uh, they've given us some low-hanging fruit, but it's, it's bigger than that. Uh, what is it, 20 years ago now that we launched this experiment called uh, reality television, so-called reality television? I think at the onset, it was quite interesting. You get people and you put them in a semi-natural setting and just flip on cameras and see how they interact. I actually think that's a, a really intriguing idea. But it's kind of devolved over the years to let's find the uh, the hottest people we can possibly find off a beach, uh, put them together, supply them with copious amounts of alcohol, and watch as the fireworks, right? I mean, that's kind of what we do. But quickly, what... Um, starts as, I don't know, sophomoric fun becomes objectification of others and exploitation, which is objectification of the self. All kinds of nasty interacting that's cheap programming and perhaps cheap thrills. But what it is, is constant modeling everywhere we look of so-called adults treating each other in ways that's reprehensible and embarrassing, and denigrating, and dehumanizing, exploiting weakness, right? I'm not one that blames much on pop culture. I think that's often quite lazy. Oh, video games make you violent. Well, I, I'm not so sure. But I do think there is something to be said for the reality that if you are just bathed in something, uh, well, our skin's porous. It just gets in. It gets in, and it's when, it's when it's all you see and all you hear and all you consume, you can't help but become it. You are what you eat, right? And so this is all around us. And one of the reasons I see nonviolent communication as a tool of resurrection is because it helps us turn that uh, relational death into life, not simply by helping you avoid, avoid those repetitive arguments and saying the wrong things, but because it can do something even better. 
And this is the piece that's hard for me to believe, but if it is so, then it is even more attractive than anything I've already said. The folks who really do nonviolent communication will say that if you do this right, not only will you learn to bite your tongue or to shape your words differently, you will learn to experience in your heart the other differently. Now think about that. Some can get quite good at saying just the right thing or avoiding the right thing. But what's going on in here, right? What's the script that's going on in here? What's the stewing or the angering or the festering inside? That You might have a smile on your face, but inside you are raging, right? You experienced this? I certainly have. Nonviolent communication says if you work these tools well enough, then you actually experience the other differently with compassion, with love. I mean, that's what Jesus said. He didn't say tolerate your neighbor. He didn't say speak kindly to them only or nod when they spout off some opinion. He said love them. Love them. It's about learning to see and to hear and to speak differently. As Rohr puts it, it's about learning to recognize the Christ in all things. Rohr, who I mentioned earlier, the great Franciscan. To truly recognize Christ in all things will radically shape, so it's basically committing to seeing the resurrection all around you, will radically shape the way you encounter those other things. He says, as I said earlier, it's not easy, right? The disciples had trouble doing it. We will have trouble doing it too. He says, don't start big. Don't start trying to love God. I would say, don't start by trying to love your enemy. Heaven forbid. He says, start with something small like a rock. Uh, And I would argue probably a small rock, one without many edges, you know, maybe a little smiley face on it to make good thoughts about the rock. Uh, Start by seeing Christ in the rock. Loving the rock, seeing the resurrection in the rock, maybe the one that was rolled away from the tomb. Then work your way up. Do you know how he opens his book? It's a very serious book, by the way. Uh, a pretty theologically, theological book, pretty heady book. He opens by recounting the death of his black lab. And he says in no uncertain terms, and he later returns to it again, and without a hint of sappy sentimentality, that he is convinced he sees Christ in the eyes of his lab. Maybe more clearly than in anything in his life. And those of you who love your dog will not be surprised by this. Can you you recognize the resurrection in your lab? Then you can start to recognize it elsewhere. It becomes a tool. It becomes a practice. And in that way of seeing it, the resurrection we celebrate on Easter isn't just something to admire and to be inspired by. It's something to aspire to. To recognizing it all around you and within you and to participating in it. And when I I think of it that way, St. Patrick's prayer becomes totally transformed. Rather than bragging about how Christ is everywhere in my life, it is a manifestation of that deep longing to recognize Christ in all things and to trust in it so much that you can dare to be nonviolent and loving 
with all that's around you. So listen to it again, now with more of its lines. This isn't even the full prayer, but it's enough. This is what he says. I arise today. It's not just a morning prayer. That's a theological conviction. I arise today. Through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness, its relationship from the beginning. Of the creator of creation, I arise today through the strength of heaven, the light of the sun, the radiance of the moon, the splendor of fire, the speed of lightning, the swiftness of wind, the depth of the sea, the stability of the earth, the firmness of rock. Roar was right. Love the rock. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I arise, now here it comes, Christ in the heart of every man, and of course we would say woman, who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. It's a prayer of deep trust in the possibility of resurrection through communication, eyes, ears, mouth. So you see the resurrection in your ability to encounter a reappearance of the risen one isn't just about what God does. It's ultimately up to what we will do and promise to do. Amen.
You may be seated. I do invite you to take a look at the bulletin and note all that is happening here in the life of the church and especially to get involved in the ways that are meaningful for you. Uh, next week after worship, we actually have three things happening at 1115. Just wanted to highlight those for you. First, um, in the fall, Jeff is going to be starting some small groups with our, with our youth, um, specifically youth that attend Del Mar, Tam High, or Branson. So if you have youth that attend one of those schools, Jeff invites you to a meeting after worship next week where he can tell you a little bit more about those small groups. Second, um, since our rest program ended, our rotating emergency shelter, I know many of you have been wondering, you know, what is happening with our friends who are experiencing homelessness. How can we continue to help and to be involved? Um, So next week, we have Nick Morris, who is the executive director of the street chaplaincy, who will be here, who will be giving us just a little bit of an update about what is happening with those experiencing homelessness in Marin, ways that we can continue to be involved. Um, So he will be here for that. Third, if you are new to this congregation, or maybe if you're not new to this congregation but have not yet made the step of becoming a member, Rob and I are going to be having a new member orientation next week to give you a little bit more information about the church and to welcome you into membership. Um, if you're wondering about that, ah, I don't know, why would I become a member? I don't understand. What, what would move me to do that? Libby, who is a relatively new member here, um, has posted a, a video on Facebook just with a little bit of her story about why she decided to become a member. Um, and so if you go to our Facebook page, Westminster Prez-Tiburon, you can see a little bit of her story. Which reminds me, speaking of social media, if you were here last week, Jeff apparently was moved by the Holy Spirit um, to promise that if we reached 100 followers on Instagram, I would shave my head. <laughs> I told him, I, I'll tell I told you what, him, I, I'll shave mine. Let's, <laughs> see, that's exactly where I was going. If we get to 1,000. I told him he had misinterpreted the Spirit, but then... But then Rob appears this morning, and you've taken care of it for me, really. So I think we actually did reach 100 followers. I'm keeping my hair, but that's my way of saying, if you aren't yet following us on Facebook or Instagram, I do encourage you to do so. We're really making an effort to be more present. Um, So take a look at that. It's in really small letters here on the back of the bulletin. You can find us there. So with that, I invite you, as you are comfortable, to stand and join in our closing hymn, which is 702.
now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and who is Mother of all of us, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit may be, may it be with us this day, but may it be with us every day. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.